Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called The Way of Jesus, a study in the Gospel of Mark. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live the way of Jesus. Thank you for joining us. When our daughter, uh, Kirsten, was in sixth grade, she started having some pain in her leg. And it started uh, getting worse and worse, so much so every once in a while she wouldn't even be able to walk. And no matter what we tried, we just could not figure out what was going on. We were desperate to help her, but we didn't know how. And if you're a parent in this room, you know that nothing will bring you to your knees as fast as a child suffering from something that you can't help them with. There's no amount of money you won't spend. There's no distance that you won't travel in order to help them. Our desperation as parents knows no bounds. And this morning, as we continue our series called The Way of Jesus, where we're walking through the Gospel of Mark together, we come across a parent who experienced this very thing. In his desperation, he does the only thing that can help his daughter. And in this story, we get this beautiful glimpse into the heart of Jesus and the way of Jesus towards those who are desperate. So if you haven't already, I'd love to invite you to take your Bible, turn it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, starting in verse 21. If you don't have your own Bible, we always carry some in the seat underneath you there. I'd love for you to grab one of those. Be a first-hander in God's Word. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you as our gift. And you can find that in those Bibles on page 816. And as you're turning there, let me just say, if you're new here to Cherry Hills, we've been making our way during different times of this year through the Gospel of Mark. That's going to continue next year as well. And the whole reason for this, if you're following on your notes with me this morning, is that we are spending time with Jesus, learning to live the way of Jesus. In other words, we're spending time looking at the words that Jesus spoke, the works that Jesus did, and generally just the way that he lived his life. And here's the key I want you to know if you're new to Cherry Hills. We're not doing this just so we can learn some more information about Jesus. You can learn about Jesus, but we want to learn how to live the way Jesus lived. I love how Dallas Willard says this. I have this up on the screen. We are learning from Jesus how to lead our life as if he would lead my life if he were me. Like that's the goal of the Christian life, to be transformed into the image of Jesus so that we're living who we are, right? We're not trying to become someone else, who we are according to how Jesus would live his life through us. So let's open up this text together this morning, spend some time learning about the way of Jesus and how that might apply to us. Now, just a quick summary. We left off in Easter Sunday in Mark, and we've been doing other things since then. We picked it up again last week. But in Easter Sunday, we looked at this passage where Jesus is asleep in a boat, and there's this raging sea all around them. The disciples are freaking out. They wake him up saying, don't you care about us, Jesus? And with one word, just like that, Jesus calms the storm. And they ask each other, who is this man? And that's really the question that we're delving into in this part of Mark right now. Who is this man? And we learned on Easter, he has power over nature. And then last week, Brian did an awesome job kind of recapping some things and showing us not only does he have power over nature, he has power over evil and Satan. And today we're going to learn that this man has power over disease and death. So let's pick it up in verse 21. This is an awesome story, one of my favorite in the Gospels. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. 
Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Let's pause here for a moment. To be a synagogue ruler meant he wasn't a rabbi, but he had an important position in the Jewish religious system. He basically ran the show at the church. And if you know anything about the ministry of Jesus, this is an interesting concept here. The religious establishment did not like him. Right? They wanted nothing to do with him. They didn't like what he said, what he taught. They didn't like his claims so much so that a couple chapters earlier, they began plotting how to kill Jesus. And yet here we have one of their leaders coming to Jesus and he falls at his feet. What does that suggest to you when somebody falls at another person's feet? It suggests desperation. It suggests reverence. It suggests possibly even Worship. Why would this synagogue leader do these things? We're told in verse 23. He pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Desperate days call for desperate measures, right? His daughter is dying. He's at the end of his rope. They've tried everything. He comes to Jesus, gets down on his knees and this an amazing statement of faith. If you would just come to my house and lay your hands on her, I believe that you could heal her. For a synagogue ruler who is supposed to be opposing Jesus and his ministry, this is quite a move of faith. I love what the first part of verse 24 says in your Bible there. It says, so Jesus went with him. That's it. That's all he needed. This is the way of Jesus, right? If you're following, the way of Jesus is compassion to those in need. Now listen, I'm just being honest about myself. If this guy came to me, I'd be like, oh, now you want my help, right? Now you're not going to oppose me. Now you're looking for things from me. We don't read anything like that about the way of Jesus. So he went with him. That's it. The rest of the story goes on in verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. We'll stop there. Here, Mark does something he does often in this gospel. It's called sandwiching. He sandwiches two stories together. And literally, like a sandwich, which is my favorite food, by the way, right? The meat is in the middle. The meat is in the middle. Mark wants us, by surrounding the story, to pay attention to the middle story, what's happening here, right? In other words, the middle story is going to provide the key for you and me to understanding the rest of the bigger story. So here we are, this middle story. This woman comes on the brief walk from Jesus to Jairus' house. He encounters another person in desperation, even though he's unaware of it. Now, in stark contrast to Jairus' bold approach, his unhesitating plea for help, his getting on his knees in worship, this woman here tries to sneak a healing. I love this, right? It's like me trying to sneak my wife's candy stash without her realizing it. Now, why? Why would she be sneaking up on Jesus trying to get a healing this way? Well, this is a complicated situation. For a couple of reasons. Number one, the Jewish people in these days, not all of them, but many of them believed that if you were suffering from some sort of a disease, it probably had to do with some sort of sin in your life or in your parents' life. And so the disciples actually believed this very thing. 
In Luke chapter 9, verse 2, when they come across a man who is born blind, they ask this, Rabbi, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so automatically, you know, this woman is put in this category. She must have done something to deserve this. There's even more layers to this, though. If you were bleeding, you were considered to be ritually unclean. You were not allowed to be a part of the community. You would be ostracized for them. So imagine this. I'm just putting yourself in her shoes now. We don't understand this. We think about her physical suffering. And yes, her physical suffering would have been great. But her emotional and social suffering is even greater. Probably had no family, couldn't go to the temple to worship or any synagogue to worship. If she touched someone, can you imagine 12 years of not being able to touch someone? They would in turn become unclean. According to this law of Moses, she was to remain in seclusion until she became clean. If you're following on your notes, please understand her ongoing disease marked her as cursed by God and an outcast in society. Do you understand now why she might be trying to sneak a healing here? Now, I'm going to come back to this later as in our application time, but just understand right now, Mark is making a huge point here for us. Jairus enjoyed life from the top of the social ladder. He was a ruler in the synagogue, right? This woman is the very bottom. Jesus doesn't care because this is his way. Look at verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, again, I'm finishing this. She came up behind them in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Can you imagine this moment? If I could just touch his cloak. She touches it, and immediately she recognizes 12 years of suffering are over. I experienced something kind of similar to this, not quite as dramatic. When I got my kidney transplant three years, I woke, three years ago, I woke up in the hospital, and I had all this color back in my face, and I recognized, like, whoa, this is how you're actually supposed to feel. This woman, after 12 years, thinking, this is how I'm supposed to to feel the same power that calmed the raging sea, the same power that healed the demon possessed man has healed this woman from 12 years of suffering. Can you imagine? Put yourself in her shoes. Her heart is throbbing. Her joy is overflowing with emotion. And I imagine if I'm her at this point, I'm like, I'm going to slip away quietly and I'm going to go live the life I want to live Unfortunately, look at verse 40 for her. At once, Jesus really realized that power had gone out from him. That's an interesting concept I'd love to get into sometime. But he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Her heart must have stopped, right? Oh, no. I've just been caught. Like when my wife asked, where has all my candy gone? Of course, the disciples can only see what's right in front of them. Look at their response to him in verse 31. You see the people crowding against you, and yet you ask, who touched me? I mean, I don't blame them here. Sometimes I'm like, clue phone for these guys, but I wouldn't blame them. Like if you've gone to a concert recently or something, you're just constantly being crowded by people and push and jostled, and he's asking to find one person in this giant crowd, but it doesn't deter Jesus. 
You see, if you're following on your notes, it's not enough for him to do a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. Jesus didn't come to put on a show for us. He came to encounter us as human beings on a personal level. So yes, he could have let it go, but he wants to know this person, this woman who demonstrated this incredible faith. So verse 32, Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the truth, the whole truth. Why would she be trembling with fear? She just made him unclean, right? Is he going to be mad? Is he going to rebuke her? Would you read verse 34 on your notes out loud with me there? It says, he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering on the ground, trembling with fear. What's going to happen to me? He looks at her and instead of using the common term, ma'am or, or woman, what does he say to her? Daughter. Hmm. What a savior we have. She had no family. She had been ostracized. And the king of kings and the Lord of lords looks at her and says, welcome to the family. My daughter. Now that's the end of this little meat section. Mark picks up the bread again with Jairus. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Now let's put ourselves in his shoes again. Can you imagine this whole scene? Hurry up! You can't stop and look for someone in the crowd. My daughter's dying. This is a desperate situation. Get going here. It's like when you go to the ER, you have an emergency, and you walk in, and the whole lobby is crowded. Like, no! Who cares about this woman? My daughter's on her deathbed right now. Let's get going. And I imagine Jesus looks at him in this very moment. These people come and tell him all hope is lost. And he says to him, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believed. Just believe. Now, Jairus has already demonstrated remarkable faith by coming to Jesus in the first place, right? He risked a lot. He risked being ostracized from his community, from his job. And Jesus says to him, just keep trusting me. I know the situation looks hopeless. I know the circumstances are desperate. Just look at me. And I don't know how certain he was of this moment, but even in his meager faith, he does. Jesus' words to Jairus here teach us something important. If you're falling on your notes... Faith requires shifting our focus from our circumstances to Jesus. He says to us, even when things seem hopeless, don't be afraid. Just believe. With respect to your daughter, Jairus, there is no hope. According to what the world would tell you, I mean, they just told you she's gone, she's dead. It's the end. But with respect to me, there's still hope. Verse 37. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? Now, this is not like we do here, but in the ancient world, in the Near East world, still today, people will oftentimes hire mourners when somebody dies. 
to make a big ruckus so that everybody in the community can come and know, oh, there's heartbreak. There's mourning to be had in this family. And Jesus shows up. This is probably what happened. You've got these professional mourners. They're already at the house. And he does what our former president used to do on his TV show. He looks at him and says, you're fired. We don't need you here because no one has died. The child is not dead, but asleep. Verse 40. Can you read that out loud with me there? But they laughed at him, right? Yeah. Why? Because if you're on your notes, they know. The crowd knows that death is final and nothing can stop it. And that's the end of the story. You might as well put your Bible away now because we all know death is the end of the story and nothing can stop it. Oh, wait, it goes on. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old, the same amount of years that the woman suffered from bleeding. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anybody know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, Brian reminded us last week that most people believe that Mark's gospel is actually Peter's gospel. In other words, Mark is interviewing Peter, getting a firsthand account of the ministry of Jesus. And I just love, I love picture him sitting down, telling him this story. It's so vivid in his mind. He even remembers the Aramaic words that Jesus uses here, right? Talitha kaum, little girl, daughter. Again, the same words he used for that bleeding woman. And I just imagine the scene, her little eyes flutter open. First face she sees is Jesus. She looks at her parents and the astounded disciples right there. The word in Greek for astounded means figuratively to lose their wits, to go out of their mind. Our expression today would be they were beside themselves. Like many of you were when the Cubs actually won the World Series, right? (laughs) Beside yourselves. Jesus did the impossible. If you're following Jesus proves that death has no power over him. Death is not the end of the story. What an awesome story, huh? What a great text. And as we step back, as we do all the time here, we don't want to just know about great texts. We want to know what to do with them in our own lives. And I just got to say, as I've looked at this the last couple of weeks, this text has impacted me personally in many ways. And I'm just going to share Four observations I had about this, and I'm hopeful they can be helpful for you as they were for me. The first thing this text teaches me is that desperate circumstances drive us to Jesus like nothing else. And I don't like it. Listen, after experiencing several desperate situations over the years, I have come to accept a difficult truth. With the right perspective, that's key. Can you view those situations as a gift from God? Or do desperate situations do the opposite for you? Do they drive you away from Jesus, questioning him? I hope that you can see as we study the the gospels here that Jesus is not a cruel God. He is a compassionate God. He is a loving God. He is a welcoming God. Your circumstances, I don't know what you bring into this room. 
They haven't escaped his notice. As this text so wonderfully shows us, he loves us, he sees us, he cares for us, he welcomes you right now as his daughter and as his son and is working in the midst of your circumstances, even if it doesn't feel that way. But for me, I can't speak for you, it's hard for me not to be in control of my circumstances. I want to oversee them. I want to run them. I want to fix them. It could be joblessness. It could be a painful disease, a broken relationship, a rebellious teenager, an upside-down marriage, powerlessness, depression, anxiety. We all have circumstances and situations we bring into this room that feel hopeless. And here's the hard truth. Sometimes that's exactly what we need. Because if I'm on my notes here, when we arrive at desperation, when I arrive at desperation, I'm forced to recognize our total dependence on him. Two weeks ago, I had my, I was just counting this up, my seventh major surgery in 20 years being here. I'm falling apart. I would not ask for that. And I know that that is very minor compared to what some of you bring into this room. And I can't answer the question. I ask it, why does this keep happening? Why do I have to do this again and again and again? And the only answer I can give to myself and to you is what the Bible says. This isn't the way I designed this world to be. It was broken. But I can tell you, I can, that in these situations and circumstances, I go to Jesus because I don't know where else to go. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I have this on the screen here. Pain plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. I'll let that sit there for a minute. In other words, it forces my independent heart to go to a source outside of myself. Jairus, no longer in control, no longer proud. He's a broken daddy. And he has nowhere else to go. He's desperate. So he humbles himself. He bows down to Jesus. This woman, do you think he would have gone otherwise, by the way? Do you think he would have gone to Jesus without this situation? I mean, that's part of what I wrestle with in this text. Probably not. This woman, 12 years suffering, was so desperate, she risked everything, hoping simply to touch his cloak. And what did she find? What did Jairus find when they went to Jesus, when they were so desperate? The same thing you're going to find. If you're on your notes, a savior waiting, willing, and ready to meet our needs. What was the last word in that? He's not gonna give us everything we want. I wish he did. I wish he was a candy dispensing God. No, I don't. But baby, what I need sometimes most, this is really hard for me to say, is to be reminded that I'm not in control. Second thing I notice in the story, it's directly tied to this one, is that Jesus asks us to trust him with radical faith. In those circumstances, in the situations you're bringing into this room, he's asking you, do not fear, but believe. Look at me. These two banked everything on Jesus, and faith is banking everything on Jesus. Faith is saying, I am completely dependent upon you. 
in this situation. Jairus demonstrates amazing faith by coming to Jesus, even though it could mean he'd be ostracized from the rest of the religious community. This woman's faith is demonstrated despite her shame, despite her condition, despite her fact that she might make everybody else unclean, that she's been rejected by others. Both believe that Jesus has the power to save, and so they act. In the context, right, of Mark's gospel, we've gone from the disciples not believing that Jesus could calm the storm. Then last week, you remember if you were here, Jesus heals this demon-possessed man. And what do the villagers want from Jesus? Leave. Get out of here. Next week, if you come back, we're going to look at the story where he goes back to his hometown. And he is amazed. I mean, we see here that the disciples are astonished. Jesus is astonished by their lack of faith. They reject him. But in the middle of these rejection stories, we've got this incredible story of faith. Faith. For Mark's readers, these lessons on faith remind us that the Christian life is not always a comfortable walk in the park. It entails trials and suffering and persecution, but when the pressure comes, when desperate times come, Jesus calls us to turn to him with a radical faith, recognizing and trusting and believing that he has a purpose in even that, and that he sees you and knows you and loves you and is working all things together for your good, period. If you're on your notes, faith is following Jesus no matter where he leads us. It reminds me of what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11. People love this chapter. I love this chapter. Part of why I love this chapter is not just all everything goes well for these people. But faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I can't see the end of my struggles and my circumstances and my suffering and my trials. But faith is confidence that he does. And he is leading me there. I don't know your story. I don't know what faith looks like for you today, but here's my challenge. Will you follow him no matter what? Having faith that he has the best in mind for you and your life and will never lead you astray. Third thing that struck out, stuck out to me in this passage, I said I'd come back to this, so I'm coming back to it. And it's simply that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of these worlds, this world. Specifically, if you're following on your notes, the kingdom of God is diverse and welcomes all who come by faith. Like That's one of the main points Mark wants us to get here, right? Sadly, this is not the way the world works. We create categories. We separate people into the in crowd and the out crowd, the people who are like me, the people who aren't like me, people on the top, people on the bottom. And Mark is clearly wanting to show us by sandwiching these two stories together, like, listen, This is not how the kingdom of God works. On the one hand, we have this outcast woman. She's been suffering from bleeding for 12 years. She's unceremonially unclean. She can't have community. She can't worship. She can't be with people. Like if you wanted to describe someone at the bottom of society, she would be your person. On the other hand, you've got Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, certainly a wealthy man. He's on top. But what brings them together? They're both in need. They're both desperate for a savior. Here we see two completely different representations of society. One rich, the other poor, one accepted, the other outcast, one with a family, the other all alone, but both need help. 
Both need the kingdom of God to come into their lives. And both, this is the key, were welcomed by Jesus. Amen? Do we need to be reminded of that today? In our divisive world where everything is either this or that, black or white, in or out, I need to be reminded all the time that's not how the kingdom of God works. Anybody who comes to him in faith is welcome into the kingdom of God. Please, church, this is Jesus' dream for us as his church. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3. Let's read these words out loud uh, together here. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do we live this way? When you leave this room, do you live this way? There's neither rich nor poor, black or white. Socially unclean, clean. My people, those people. This isn't the kingdom of God. Final thing this passage reminds me of is that though our world is broken, there is a future hope for us. Do you believe that? Whenever you hear the words kingdom of God, I don't know what comes to your mind, but the gospel writers clearly have this idea in mind that the kingdom of God is here and now with Jesus. We get to live in the kingdom of God. He ushered it in with his life and death and resurrection. We are living in the kingdom of God if we are following Jesus. However, we also know that the kingdom of God is not yet. It hasn't been fully culminated. Jesus is not yet reigning as king of kings and lord of lords over this earth. I mean, I don't need to tell you that because you're experiencing that. There's still death and disease. There's still brokenness in this world. But the promise of Jesus is that while Satan dealt a death blow to all of creation when he enticed the first humans to sin, he did not deal a death blow to the creator. In fact, at that very moment, the creator began his plan of redemption for his people, saying he will not have the last laugh. Death will have no victory over me. And so that is why God came in the person of Jesus and said, I am going to establish my kingdom through him forever and ever and ever. There will be no more disease, no more tears, no more sickness, and no more death. And that is why my favorite part in this story is Jesus' words to these mourners. Why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead. She is asleep. Did you know this is what the early church referred to death? Just sleeping. They've just gone to sleep. Why? It's just temporary. They'll be woken up. Again, one day, that's the good news of the kingdom of God. If you're on your notes, for those who have faith, death is no longer the end. No matter what trials, suffering, sickness, hardships, or anything else you're enduring right now, stand firm. Have faith. Resurrection day is coming. Amen? Jesus has power over your diseases. He has power over your sickness. He has power over your circumstances. And one day he will come again in glory and make all things new. 
This is the victory that we hang on to as followers of Jesus. Paul says it the best at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. I have this on your notes. Can we read and close by reading this out loud together like it's actually the good news it is? Would you do that with me? It says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. And yet, Paul doesn't finish there. He's got one more thing to say at the end of this. Look at what he says in verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, what? Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So as we close, here's my question for you as you prepare your heart to take communion. Will I cling to Jesus with desperate faith in his final victory? No matter what's going on in your life right now, will you cling to Jesus? Will you look to him with a radical faith, trusting that he sees you, he knows you, he loves you, and no circumstance will ever have power over him. Let's pray. Lord, we want to do the very thing I just invited people to do. So I just give a moment of silence in this prayer to consider this question. Will we look to you right now? All of us come in here with baggage, with brokenness. Many of us come in here with suffering and we're desperate. We need a word of hope and we've received one. So we just want to sit in that right now. what you find when you turn to Jesus. But if this story teaches us anything, he is saying to you right now, daughter, son, I see you. I know the pain you're going through. I know it feels hopeless. But look at me. I underwent tremendous suffering. I went to death at a cross. I was raised from the dead so that one day I could wipe away your tears and wipe away your sadness and wipe away your suffering and that you could join me in an everlasting feast of gladness as I reign and rule as king over the world as it was created to be. Look to me for your final victory awaits.
Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.